Hey, as the lights have come up and your eyes are adjusting, uh, we're just going to jump right into our, our text, uh, which we're in James chapter 2. We survived chapter 1. We're in uh, chapter 2 this morning, uh, the first 13 verses. Um, and if you don't have a Bible, uh, I feel like there's times where, I, where I'm a broken record, but I, I would love for you to have your own. If you don't have one, uh, we have some at the Connection Center over here in what we're going to call this the Commons. If you don't know where the Commons is, it's through those double doors. And uh, if you'd like a Bible and you don't have one, that's our gift to you. So uh, as we jump in, we're going to read the first 13 verses. And here's what uh, I love as we uh, get into worship and what... Um, as Jim was kind of praying and, and talking about um, this book, what, what I really just want to preface is uh, this is not a cushy series, okay? And that's what I actually feel. There's more angst for me in my study than there is just pure joy sometimes of like, man, let's, let me encourage you. Let me build you up. There's some, some parts where I'm going to do some breaking down, but hopefully that's your pride and not your soul. And, and so this morning, really, as we get into this text, this is where James is quite serious uh, about this passage saying, listen, this is a sin we need to address. And although the church was really facing persecution, the church was also kind of lazy and kind of at a struggling point. And so as we read this, don't get this idea that these are Christians that, man, these are so much better than us. They don't struggle like we do. They struggled both with the trials that we've talked about, both with being doers of the word, and now as we look at partiality and the issue of favoritism. So as we look at James chapter 2, we're going to read the first 13 verses, starting in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you sit over there or sit at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you if you show partiality, you are committing sin and the can and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. And mercy triumphs over judgment. So before we just kind of unpack our text this morning, what what we need to understand about this culture is that in the first century AD, 
partial leadership really governs society. And, and I'm not referencing the church, but, but the leadership, the, the political side of things back in James's day, there, there was really a partial leadership. So people were defined by, by their culture, by their upbringing, and by what they were surrounded by. So people were either rich or poor. They were slaves or free, Jew or Gentile, or Greek or barbarian. And so there's kind of some distinctions there. And James really points out to the believers that partiality is really the current cultural issue that needed to be addressed. Not just a little reminder, but let's get at the heart of this and walk out different together. And so sadly, really for us this morning, this isn't something that we look back and go, let's learn from their mistake. But, but this is probably just as a, a dominating now as it was in James's time, if not more today. But however, what we see from that time is part of the good news of the gospel was that in Jesus Christ, there is no partiality. So social barriers really in that culture began to lose their strength, lose their grip of leadership But it really took a while for this truth to sink in, to sink into the hearts of the Christians. Because what they grew up around, what they kind of saw of the culture, was really this idea that everything was partial. And so Peter, we see in the book of Acts in chapter 10, Peter is kind of partial in his approach. He has this idea that the Jews are the chosen ones, the Gentiles, they can hear the message, but they don't receive the message. And and he's kind of partial to those two parties And the Holy Spirit just presses upon him as we read in verse 34 and 35 and just gives him a vision seeing that God's message of salvation is for all. And so really what we see is that the gospel shows no partiality, no no favoritism, no this group gets it and this group doesn't. And so we see this kind of in Peter's vision. And And then again, we see this from the apostle Paul. When he tells the church, and you can read most of the New Testament with Paul's letters, and throughout those letters you hear this message, but he tells the Galatians in chapter 3, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one. You are all unified together in Christ Jesus. And so, as we see this cultural issue from their time, still in our time, there begins to be this change of heart when we apply the gospel. And in chapter one, what I think is really important, as we read those first 13 verses of chapter two, we cannot apply them without the application of last week in chapter one. That in last week, we, if you weren't here, what we talked about was being a doer of the word, not just a hearer. And that we need to be, as doers of the word, we need to have an understanding of how we can practice true religion. Because our God is not partial. True religion is not partial. And in Christ Jesus, partiality has been crucified on the cross. It was something of culture back then. It's no longer in Christ and in Tim, Timothy Keller's book, Gospel in Life, he said this, that I think is just an incredible premise and foundation as we get into our text this morning. He says, a merely religious person who believes God will favor him because of his morality and respectability will ordinarily have contempt for the outcast. I worked hard to get where I am, and so can anyone else. That is the language of the moralistic heart. I am only where I am by the sheer and unmerited mercy of God. I am completely equal with all other people. That is the language of the Christian's heart. 
a sensitive social conscience, and a life poured out in deeds of mercy to the needy in the inevitable sign of a person who has grasped the doctrine of God's grace. And so really, this is, a, this is a different language for us to say, okay, partiality is sin. We don't want to be partial to anyone. So it's really a different approach here for us. This language is of someone, as Timothy Keller says, has grasped and fully embraced the doctrine of God's grace. And so those of us that claim to be Christians are never to be perfect, Let me just repeat myself. What I feel like I keep saying in a good way to you, church, is that none of us are called to be perfect and none of you are awesome, okay? And what I've said over and over again is you and I are not awesome because Christ is. And so we, when we put ourselves in this hierarchy of, man, I'm awesome, I'm good, then, then where does Christ fit in any of that? And so to the believer, those working out their faith and their salvation, this isn't a shock. To you sitting there, you you find humor in my words, but you're not discouraged by them. If you're working out your faith, this isn't a shock to you. It's not a hurtful statement, I hope. And it's not a discouragement or a a segregation of your well-being, but it's a freeing truth that in Christ, we, we bank everything on him. It's not about us. That's why there's no expectation of you trying to be awesome. And so for the non-believer, if, if you're someone who's walked in here and, and you're going, well, I don't follow Jesus. So, so for that, why is that freeing? Maybe you're kind of asking that question. Why is that freeing for a pastor to stand up there and say something so bold as to say, you're not awesome. That seems discouraging. Here, here's what we see of scripture. Nowhere in the Bible will you find an apostle, a prophet, or a disciple that was chosen because of their awesomeness. And any time that they think that's what it is, God corrects that. I mean, you look at Peter. Look at, look at Peter, where he begins as a fisherman. This, this man rolls in and Jesus says, drop what you're doing, follow me, and I'll make you a fisher of men. And we see throughout Peter's following of Jesus, there's still struggles. In fact, if you read the story in Matthew 16, Peter finally, in his conversion, claiming Christ, he, he kind of messes up and just basically says, I believe you are Lord, I'll follow you, but don't die on me. And he doesn't get that right. And so, so Jesus really says, you don't understand the resurrection. You need to understand this. And so Peter is not chosen because of his awesomeness. Think of James himself, as we talked about last week. James, the half-brother of Jesus, really doubted in the midst of Jesus' ministry. Because if you have a half-brother, the last thing you think is that they're deity. Okay, And so really there's that, that struggle. And then we see Paul. And Paul is a great example of someone that's not awesome, who thought they were awesome. In fact, what Paul tells his young spiritual son, Timothy, is that he is the chief sinner, as he calls himself. That becomes his title under the surrender of Christ. Because this is a guy that was zealous for the ways of, of Judaism, for the ways of knowledge, and, and, and he was killing Christians. And so, and so for us, for us to really address the underlying issue of partiality, not just for me to say to you, hey, let's, let's not be partial. Let, let's not show favoritism because it's easy for to, us to say that, but we need to get at the heart of this. So in our time today, what, what I really hope to do is really unpack the, the two uh, what's of partiality and, and then really resolve on what is the resolve in Christ. 
And so as we dig into chapter two, as we read in our text, what we see from James is that partiality is counter to the gospel. So if you're taking notes, write that down. Partiality is counter to the gospel. One of the main issues for the unchurched, those are, are those who have never been to church, and then the de-churched, those who were once a part of church and have walked away from church, their biggest issue in Christianity is that they believe this statement, all people are not created equal in the Christian faith. Not all people are created equal. There's a hierarchy and a level that I can't figure out how to get above, and that's their belief. But that's not true. But this is what they've been shown. You see the difference there? See, this, this may not be truth. We see in the scriptures, this is not the truth, but this is what they've been shown. And this is why we need Jesus. Because in our own struggle, and our own sin, and our own mess, we don't have what it takes to resolve this. We needed a better way, which is what Jesus shows us. The gospel is Jesus showing us a better way because Jesus not only engaged with messy people as we see in his ministry, but he put himself in the middle of the mess, in the middle of your mess, in the middle of my mess, and he redeemed us all. He redeemed us all. And so this is why Paul says, as he calls himself the chief sinner, as he says to the Romans in 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation. So as Christians, if we profess to be Christians, Bible-believing, Jesus-following Christians, whose goal is to imitate Jesus, then, then our actions towards others, to the church, to the unchurched and the de-churched, all of these together needs to be a reflection of who Jesus is. Our, our response needs to be a reflection of who Jesus is. So let me just tell you for a second, because I think sometimes we can have this response that is really counter to the gospel. Here's what I think this looks like played out in, in our circle, in our church. For one, that we don't just have one circle saying, we're the in-group, you've got to come in. And some points that really communicate that in a negative way is when you have a non-believer come in and then a believer in our group just kind of saying, can you believe how they're acting? Can you believe their, their life is like that? Can you believe they look like that? They, they act like that. They talk like that. Well, well, yeah, I can believe that because they don't live according to Christ. That's, that's the message of where we're beginning. Not, not, not act better. It's that Christ is better. That's where we begin with non-believers. And then you see the struggling believer coming in, fully aware of their issue. Guys and gals who just say, man, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a chief sinner. I feel up there with Paul. I, I see what needs to take place. I see what needs to change. And then someone walks into that circle and says, hey, I don't, I don't think they should be in our group. I don't think this struggling believer, and I'm not saying someone blatantly choosing sin, but someone struggling in it and confessing it. You know what? That just doesn't work for me, for someone to say that. And then for the new believer, the new believer who comes in and, and their life, as you may know, was a mess. Their life looked nothing like a life lived in Christ. And, and it's wrong for us. It, it is counter to the gospel for us to look at that new person in Christ and say, can you believe what their life was like? Can you believe what that looked like? Absolutely. I absolutely can. 
That's the thing that shocks me so much about, about our interactions in the church. The most comical thing to me is when someone comes to me and says, oh my gosh, can you believe that person who actually sold me drugs in high school is now here in one of your ushers? That's not a thing, so don't look at our ushers that way. But, <laughs> but at this point, think about this for a moment. Our response to not be counter to the gospel, but to reject partiality, reject passivity, and celebrate. So we celebrate and going, yeah, I do know that. Look at how their life is now. I mean, remember, that's, that's a process. What we know of the book of Galatians is that the apostles didn't at first quite believe Paul, going, okay, is this just an end for him to kill us? And so there's a process in that, but it cannot be by partiality. It cannot be by us than stepping in and going, man, you got to meet my level. I mean, really? Let me just remind you, we're not that awesome. Jesus is that awesome. So what we, what we bank everything on is, oh my gosh, look what Christ has done in that person's life. I want to lean into that. I want to walk with them in that because we are all under the issue of partiality. As human beings, you think you're perfect? That, that, that proves you're not perfect. We're all under the issue of partiality. We're all under the issue of sin that we need resolve and, and we need to be under the grace of God. And so this issue really is, is both inside the church and it's outside the church. I mean, the most comical thing is those outside the church saying, I don't want to go there. It's filled with a bunch of judgmental people, which is judgmental to say. It's so intriguing. And, and my response to a person like that is, absolutely, there, there are judgmental people. There are lazy people. That's what the book of James is about. That is why we study it today. We don't want to be lazy. We don't want to be judgmental. So we don't want that to be the position that we come from. And inside the church and outside the church, there are these issues. And so the example that needs to be shown of how to move forward, not being counter to the gospel, but living in the gospel, is inside the believer acting out in that. So for us as the church, what we need to understand is all of us together united through the trusting and believing in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If that is genuine in a person's life, they're, they're, they're in. There, there's no out. There's no, there's no extra step. There's the process of growing in Christ. And so we need to understand this, that partiality is really counter to the gospel. And unity really becomes impossible when Christians see themselves above others. And so our unity must be something that is moving towards the growing result of a selfless love, a love like Jesus. And if we're not, we're, we're really not living in Christ. We're actually more of slaves, which is what James tells us, that partiality makes us slaves to the world. In verse 6 and 7, James asks the church several questions. And, and, and what's interesting is these are questions, but these are really his accusations. These are really his statements of, are, are you really acting like this? Are you really responding like this? He's pointing out their core issue, that they were honoring the rich who abused them, who sued them, and that were cursing and blaspheming Jesus. So James's issue with this is that they were wanting to be loved by the world. 
accepted by them, wanting to be approved. And by them doing this, by us doing this, we basically cozy up to our abuser, the world. We basically say, man, I want to be loved by you. And there's a whole different approach when we say, man, I want to be loved by you. I want to be accepted. I want to look like you than saying, I want you to be loved according to Christ. And so this is the issue that James is pointing out, that partiality makes us slaves to the world. So we wind up being a slave to the world that really mocks us and and makes life difficult on us, that dishonors our eternal brothers and sisters and really belittles the name of God. And so James is really saying, "Don't, don't do this. Don't you see the hardships that come with you being in the world? That you being of the world. So he's saying, listen, here is something important. You have to see it. Don't be a slave of the world. And really when it comes to slavery, this kind of abuse, there's there's an interesting psychological trauma that happens in the abused. When people are abused, there is an interesting process. There's an interesting thinking and the way they go about life. And if you do any kind of study, any type of counseling, you'll know this to be true, that that person doesn't feel free. They feel in bondage and they don't know how to get out of it. And one of the most heartbreaking things, one of the most gut-wrenching examples of this is when an abused woman in an unhealthy marriage goes back to her abusing husband. And so this husband who's beating on her, who's being ignorant, a little boy acting like a man, and she goes back to him. She snuggles back up to him and says, I'm good here. See, that's a good definition of slavery. That's a, that's a gut-wrenching example that just makes you uncomfortable. But, but this is what we do when we say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna look like the world and throw some Jesus in there. And so when we begin to judge one another based on how we look, based on how we dress, based on how we go about our day-to-day, then we're just moving more and more into a slavery of the world. But that's not how you were called. So as we look at this, being slaves of the world, what we need to remember is Paul's words again to the Galatians later in chapter four. In verse seven, he says, you are no longer a slave. Think about that. You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. One of the most incredible illustrations is that God doesn't just save, doesn't just save the good kid, he saves the bad kid and he adopts them and calls them his own. That is one of the most incredible examples of who our God is. So really there's this distorted understanding of how we are to go about this life when we are slaves of the world. Because as slaves of the world, we have a distorted view where we're viewing and responding to everyone in light of slavery. So really we don't, with that distorted view, we don't know how to respond. We don't know how to go out from there because we're already in slavery. But as sons, as daughters of the living God, we can see and we can respond with God's view. And so it's really a shift from being of the world to just being in it. Because then, then our understanding is, I'm not of the world. Why would I act like that? I'm, I'm not of that family. I'm not of that culture. I'm counterculture. 
I'm not supposed to act like that. This is how God says I'm supposed to act. And in 1 Samuel 16, 7, we see that God says, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So for us to move out of slavery, we need to not judge as the world judges. We need to judge rightly and and really live according to Christ. And what we see for the resolve in Christ is that Christ calls us into gospel living. All of this partiality, all of the favoritism saying, I'm gonna, I'm gonna show favoritism to this person and, and, and disregard this person is anti-gospel. And so Christ calls us into gospel living. And James really shows us in verse 12 and 13 in the, the end of this text that we will one day be judged, he says, by the law of liberty. So he calls the church and and really calls us to, here's two things, to speak and act as though we are being judged under this law. But not a a law that's burdensome, but the law he's talking about is the gospel. So as we close this morning, there's really two components of this gospel living that I think are important for us. And there's, there's quite a few components of gospel living that we see throughout the Bible, but I think there's two that are really important for us to remember That first is true gospel living means there's transformation. That when the gospel is central in our lives, we experience spiritual transformation. Not just moral improvement. In fact, it's not about moral improvement. But this change doesn't come about by our willpower, but by the power of the resurrection. That the same power that that raised Christ from the dead is at work within us. And our hope for becoming what God desires for us, how he has designed us, is not us trying harder, not us following a false man-made religion, but it's about us trusting more. The transformation of living a gospel-centered life really happens when you choose to trust Jesus more. Relying on his truth and spirit to sanctify you, to set you apart for him. And so there has to be transformation to live a gospel-centered life. And I think the second element of which I have talked about a lot this year is community. When the gospel is central in our lives, and I mean genuinely central, I, I think there's a longing for community that's found in the local church. And, and I think the response of that is more Christ-like, not, not, not fake of like, man, that's a perfect group of people that I love to get together with. We got all our bumper stickers and all our Jesus shirts, but, but they're the messy, tattered, tainted, sometimes ugly people. I'm not calling you ugly this morning, but here's my point. It's, it's not because of the perfection that we'll ever find in the local church, but because we find the people of God desiring to be like him. Are there, are there lazy people going, I don't really care. I just want to be here and, and hear a fun message. Yeah, for sure. That's why I'm, I'm not trying to preach a fun message. I'm not the funny guy. I'll never try to be. I, I think what's important here for us as we gather together, we're not gathered because we're perfect. We're, we're not gathered because we've reached full maturity. That's heaven, Okay. So there's always a process of maturing no matter how young you are, how old you are. 
So it's within this community, really a, a covenant community committed to one another where we experience the kind of fellowship that comforts the afflicted, corrects the wayward, strengthens the weak, and encourages the disheartened. So as we close this morning, let me ask you this question. Let me, let me end on this question for us that James really gives us in a parallel example between the rich man, well-seated by the community, and the poor man seated off to the side and, and on the floor. When it comes to your seat, not just here this morning, but the seat in your life, who is seated on the throne? Are you trusting more and more in the God that has saved you through Christ Jesus? Who is seated on the throne of your life? Because when we have Jesus seated on the throne of our life, we, we stop trying to see through our own partial eyes. We stop trying to respond with our own partial hearts. And we begin to put Christ on the throne of our lives to see with, with his eyes and respond with his heart. So who is seated on the throne of your life? Let's pray.